0: Hi, you're listening to audio from Rock Hill Church. To check out more resources, please visit rockhilllawrence.com. Thank you for joining us. By reading a bit, just the start of our text this morning, i want to start there and I'm going to back up a little bit and try to zoom out with it. This is in John chapter 10. I'm going to read the first, I think, six verses. Jesus says this, Truly, some translation I read last night said, very soberly, I say to you, the one not entering through the gate of the sheep pen, but who climbs in by another way, is a thief and a robber. The one entering through the shepherd's gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls each Of the sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all out his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow after him because they know his voice. But they will not follow a stranger, but will run away from him because they do not know the stranger's voice. And then John tells us Jesus used this figure of speech because they did not understand what he was saying to them. Today we're going to hear stories. We just heard it. Really, like, no one really knows what to do with this teaching in, in terms of, like, categorizing or trying to define it. It's, it's, some people say it's parable, but not really. Uh, parable has a singular point. Some people say it's allegory. Um, not really, because allegory is usually like multiple points and kind of each character or each object in the story means something. And this story has some traits of those. There kind of is a singular point. Some of the characters and object can, you can kind of see in a particular way, but it doesn't really fit that. I think short stories are my, my best. And there's, like a, there's not a clear pattern. Like sometimes you don't know what Jesus is talking about at any given moment. So there's a little bit of a complexity in it that the the stories do move forward. He he just told the two stories, what I just read, and then he's going to spend time explaining them. That's what we'll read uh, in a minute. We'll add that. But he has to explain them. Why? Because John tells us. He tells the two short stories, one of a, a gate, and then the other one he uses, a very famous metaphor, Old Testament. A lot of the prophets use it. Shepherd. But he says they didn't get it, so Jesus is going to unpack it. The short stories interplay with each other, and that's sometimes that gets confusing. You got gate, you got sheep, you got a shepherd, you got a gatekeeper. He shows up, and we're not really sure sometimes where to slot one, and that's not really the point. If you try to do that, you kind of miss it. At the same time, in the, in the middle of that kind of rolling story and explaining that we'll hear in a minute, there there is kind of a Fairly simple thing he's saying. So it's really brilliant, uh, and I think that it can be really, really helpful. Before we read the rest of the story, I think we should ask, what's the context of the story? Like, when I was reading this, John 10, it's a pretty famous passage. I guarantee many of you are familiar with it. I think I've I've read this story like Jesus must have like floated down on a cloud and walked out of the cloud with like a hundred sheep and he's got a staff in his hand and he just starts teaching about shepherds and sheep. Well, I know better than that. There's always a context. Anything we're reading in scripture, we should ask, what's going on? What's the context? Sometimes we're pretty sure. It's not that difficult to piece together sometimes. We're not as sure. One of the cues is this. At the beginning of chapter 10, there's no introduction. You know, John doesn't say, and now Jesus is here, and it's this time, and this is why he's going to say that. There's no introduction at all, and I think that's an important clue because I don't think an introduction was needed at all. What do I mean by that? I think Jesus is still in exactly the same place and context as where we've been the last two weeks. John chapter 9. Remember, there were no chapters and verses when John wrote. There are no chapters and verses when anyone wrote Scripture. If you had the gospel of John on a scroll or two, you wouldn't be able to tell even when one Section started and the other stopped. They flow. By the way, there wasn't punctuation either. (laughs) Can you imagine the challenges with that? So we have to like do the work of trying to figure out when stopping and starting is happening. But what has just happened? Let's go back to the question. What has just happened in chapter 9? Well, we've been there the last two weeks. What was it? Was the healing of a blind man on the Sabbath. This amazing story, it starts off with this provocative question by the disciples Who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus says, No one, and now I'm going to show you. And he gets up and he makes a mud pack out of dirt and spit. He tells the man to wash, and he is healed. And, and we want that to be the story. We want that to really, like, stop there so we can celebrate. But as we've seen, that's not the story in, in its entirety because there's this follow-up. There's this ripple effect from the story. The Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, one of the political parties, get, step into it. And they begin interrogation. And they interrogate not only this man who's been healed, but even his parents Now, while all this is going on, Jesus is kind of mysteriously absent. He's healed the man, but then we don't see him again, and then we do. And where do we find him? He's on the street. And what is he doing? He's looking for the man who has been tossed out of the synagogue. And he finds him. And then we saw it last week. There's this really beautiful, compelling scenario. Where Jesus is inviting this man to faith in him. And he's worshiping in a place that one wasn't supposed to worship. Right there in the street, in the commonness of his life in the dirt, he's worshiping Christ. And then we get to chapter 10. There's no introduction. Jesus just begins to talk. Chapter 9 ended with these two short exchanges. One I just described with a man. And then the Pharisees, they step back in and say, um, What about us? Are we now the blind guys? And Jesus says, Oh, were it that simple? If you were just blind, we could fix that very easily a little dirt and spit, we could heal that. But your blindness is of a different kind because your will and your heart, the condition of your soul is wrapped up in it. And, and your healing won't happen without your participation in it. It's not as simple as go wash in the pool. Something must be done by you. Something is demanded of you. And so Jesus ends What we call chapter 9 with the statement, your guilt remains. And it was a stunning and sober statement. And then Jesus begins teaching. And and I, I suspect perhaps the reason someone decided, let's call this chapter 10, is because Jesus has slowed down. But who's he talking to? He's talking to the same group he was talking to at the end of chapter nine. He's not in a pastoral setting, I don't think. This isn't a a pleasant teaching with the, you know, the kind of the sheep at his feet. I think he's still having a conversation. I don't think it's only the Pharisees they're there hearing. I think it's everybody that's been around while chapter 9 was happening. He's going to talk. And he's addressing the Pharisees with this. Because the Pharisees are the gatekeepers of the prevailing religious culture of Jesus' people group, his tribe. They're the ones with the authority, with the established power. And Jesus is addressing them. He started with your guilt remains, but he's now going on. He's going to tell them these stories using these metaphors of a gate and a shepherd. Not just of a gate and a shepherd, though. There's also the sheep. Don't forget the sheep in the story. They're part of it. And in the middle of the statement, we're going to see in a minute, Jesus is going to say something really dense. The, the whole This whole teaching kind of orients around a particular thing Jesus is going to say. And it's not going to be just for the Pharisees. It's going to be for this man who was just healed. It's going to be for his disciples who are surely in the crowd, close by. And it's going to be to any onlookers who are present. So let's hear the story. Let's hear all of it. This time I'm going to start from the beginning. I'm going to read John chapter 10, and this is going all the way through verse 21, so half of the chapter. Very truly I say to you, the one not entering through the gate of the sheep pen, but who climbs in by another way is a thief and a robber. The one entering through the shepherd's gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls each of the sheep by name, and he leads them out. So much going on here, isn't there? I mean, we don't have time to to drill down in these words and phrases. When he's brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but will run away from him because they do not know the stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So now he's going to unpack. Therefore, verse 7 starts. Maybe your Bible says, So, Jesus said again, very soberly, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who've come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters through me, excuse me, they will be rescued, and they will come in, and they'll go out, and they'll find pasture. The thief came to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came so they might have life and have it fully. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, his whole life, for his sheep. The hired laborer is not the shepherd, the sheep are not his. <clears throat> when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he flees. The wolf attacks. It scatters them. Because a hired laborer is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine. And those who are mine know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my whole life. The, the word here, by the way, for life is not often a word that's used. It's where it We get the word psychology. It's also how it's usually translated soul. It's not the word for physical life. That would be bios, biology majors. He uses suke here, which is best translated in this context all of me, my whole life. Verse 16 I also have sheep that are not from this sheep pen. And it is necessary for me to bring them so they may also hear my voice. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. Because of this, my father loves me. For I lay down my whole life that I might take it up again. No one takes it, meaning his life, from me. But I lay it down on my own. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up. And this is the command I received from my father. Again, there was division, John says, among the Jews over these words. For many of them says, he has a demon and he's nuts. Why listen to him? But others said, really? Surely these aren't the words of a demon-possessed person. How could such a person... Open the eyes of the blind. Let's offer a prayer. Lord, we've heard the whole story. We hear it. Give us ears to hear it. Give us ears to hear it, at least in some form or fashion, the way that those people around Jesus that that day a long time ago heard it. That's helpful. Lord, but we really want to hear it also in our context, our lives as followers of you, our life together. This is us, your people. We're just a small part of us. And we're not particularly an impressive part of it. But it's us, Lord, so we ask that you would do what your Holy Spirit does. You've been kind with us, Lord. You've been gracious and merciful every step of the way. And we know we can depend on that. So in this moment, give us understanding of what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this story is not just about the good shepherd. Jesus isn't just talking about a good shepherd. He's also talking about bad shepherding. He's given a commentary on some very, very bad shepherding that's been going on. And and he's quoting, there's like quoting going on all over the place here. Not, Not always word for word, but concept for concept. And most of the quoting that's going on here is from the prophet Ezekiel. Most of that is from chapter 34 of Ezekiel. You can check that out later. There's some here and there from prophet Isaiah 2 in chapter 40. But he's using Ezekiel. And we'll we'll take a peek a little bit for just a moment at a a few verses from Ezekiel 34. That's all time we'll have in, in a moment. But what Jesus is doing here is critiquing the Pharisees. It's important to be clear about that. He's saying... You guys are not the kind of shepherds God wants for his people. You're not following the ways of God. And you're not even following some shepherds who've gone before you, some imperfect ones like David. And as it turns out, the irony is, these shepherds, so to speak, who are the ones who pronounce judgment, on this outsider, this sinner, this blind man. Now, these stories are being told to say one thing to them. You are now, sadly, crosswise with God. You're the ones pronouncing cursing. Remember how he ended chapter 9. Your guilt remains. Ezekiel and a lot of the prophets like to use shepherd as a metaphor. It makes sense. The Old Testament, as well as much of the New, comes to us in the cultures that are agrarian, very much farm communities. So, shepherd is prominently used. So, Jesus is using that cultural agrarian setting from the prophet Ezekiel. I don't want to read just a few. Verses, I think the first one's five, but it's going to jump all over the place. I just had to copy and paste. Otherwise, I'm going to have to read the whole chapter. So you can read that on your own. Ezekiel writes, the people were scattered because there was no shepherd. And then he quotes God saying, my flock lacks a shepherd. And so it has been plundered and has become food for wild animals My shepherds did not search for my flock, but they cared for themselves rather than for my flock. And then Ezekiel starts talking about good shepherding in the middle of his treatment. He says, as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, God says, so I will look after my sheep. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured And strengthen the weak. And I will shepherd the flock with justice. The descriptive phrases here that Jesus is using from Ezekiel, they're, they're similar in kind to the words, the language he's using here for the Pharisees in his own language. But he kind of takes it up a notch. Listen to some of his Phrases for the Pharisees, thief, robber, stranger, ones who kill, ones who steal, ones who destroy, hired laborers, cowardly. It was the practice of bad shepherds which has been on display in John 9. With the interrogation, we're watching some bad shepherding going on. This man has experienced God. He's encountered a healing father. This man who has been seen by his community as cursed, sinful. God has stepped in in the flesh in Jesus and has put his hands on his eyes using the dirt to do it. And this man found sight. Not only that, this God who became flesh went looking for him. After he was tossed out by religion, and he found him, and he calls him and he invites him in a relationship with God, and this man worships. Man, it's so compelling, that whole story. It's worth your meditation to read that story and slow down but not the Pharisees. That's not how they saw this. They saw this as through their legalism. Jesus did all this on a Sabbath. And so now Jesus is using them. See, they get they have the upper hand in the interrogation. They have the upper hand when they're tossing him out. And now Jesus is using this. He's slowed down and he's quietly using them as an example of bad shepherding. And then he starts bringing himself into the conversation. He starts talking about good shepherding. He starts contrasting. He says a good shepherd, unlike the bad shepherds, he says three things. One, a good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them and his sheep know him. They know his voice. You have people in your life you know, right? I don't mean you're acquainted. I mean you know them, (laughs) right? You know them. You can like, yeah, I I knew you were going to say that. You know, you can anticipate their moves and their thoughts fairly consistently. They surprise you every once in a while. But you know them. That's what Jesus is saying here. Not just we've signed, this, the good shepherd has like bought the sheep and signed a contractual agreement with someone that they're his now. It's like, no, he knows them. I think there's something happening. I think so we've heard some stories. Brian told a story to, in a meeting we were in the day about shepherd that, that he saw in Asia. Um, I remember I was on the, on the side of a mountain in Tajikistan many years ago. And I, I was on the side of this mountain, and there's a valley, and there's another mountain, and I, I see a shepherd over there. And he, he's a Tajik shepherd, and he's got a, a dog with him, and he's got, I don't know, 30 or 40 cattle with him. And, um, I, I, you know, I just kind of stood there with my hands in my pocket and just watched him. It wasn't particularly interesting, you know. He was just walking with his cattle. but I, But I imagined as I studied this week, like, I bet that dude knows those cows. You know, I bet for him, they're they're living perhaps, uh, certainly during Jesus' day, in sort of solitude regarding people, Uh, but with these animals so much, I bet there's a relationship that's between them. I bet there's a knowledge that exists there. That they couldn't explain it to you, they just know them, and the cattle know the shepherd. So, Jesus says, The good shepherd will not run at the sight of danger in a time of trouble. Bad shepherds do that because they're hired hands, but the good shepherd stays with the sheep. And then, thirdly, he says, Not only does he stay. Not only does he persevere with the sheep in tr- times of trouble, he stays committed. And he stays committed. And this, and this is when the teaching like, takes on a new dimension a little bit. The, the, he's, he's getting ready to step beyond the Old Testament uh, imagery of shepherding. He says that the, the good shepherd is not only like, with the sheep and committed to the sheep and he knows them, but he has a mission and it, and it transcends going just like shepherding 101, good shepherding. He's like he lays his life down for the sheep. Shepherds, you know, there might be a few out there who would do that, but that's not in prophecy. The closest we get to it is when the boy David was a shepherd, he he killed a lion and a bear once, you know, and that was pretty pretty big, you know. No small thing. It's probably as close as we get. But, th- but this is unique. The shepherd dying for the sheep. Jesus is now making it deeply personal. Like there's likely a quiver in his vocal cords right here. Because he's communicating something very intimate to him, for him. Laying his life down. He could have easily left this part out of the teaching. No one would have known. But for him, this was the essence of shepherding. It was asking more from him. Something deeper. Something greater. He's going to say more about that. So, kind of in summary, Jesus says, the good shepherd... He knows his sheep. He cares for them to the very end. And he says, the sheep, they follow him. So what about the Pharisees? You know, you, you wish they would have been like right here, like starting to reflect. You wish there'd be just an ounce of curiosity. And, and by the way, for some of them, there is. John's careful to tell us. Some of them are like, "Eh, we're not so sure. You guys are interpreting this right. We don't get much more. We kind of wish we did. We don't get much more. But but this is an opportunity for the Pharisees. It seems like he's talking about us a little bit here. Like, Could could there be just like 1% of his critique that might fit? Could there be something here for us? But they will not do that. Why? Because their will and their heart has been set. It has married a paradigm about Jesus. And they are determined to do with Jesus what they have decided collectively to do. So they repeat their charge. He is filled with a demon and he's nuts. They attack his character again. It's the only bullets they have left. And then Jesus makes his big statement right here. It's verse 10. A lot of you memorize this verse, right? This statement has become like one of a handful of like, you know, big idea statements of what Jesus came to be his purpose and, and this teaching, it forms the heart of this. You kind of really get this, you get it. It it's stated a bit poetically, but it's not poetic. He wasn't trying to be pithy or or you know Yoda-like or anything. He's trying to really be clear and concise. The thief, he says, the bad shepherd. He comes to steal. He comes to murder, kill, and destroy. I mean, he's using the strongest language he has. But the good shepherd came that you might have what? Yeah, life. This statement unveils more than anybody was ready for. He's gone beyond just bad shepherding versus good shepherding, bad shepherding. You know, they're hired. They don't really protect the sheep. He's gone way beyond because as tragic as this rendering for the bad shepherds are, thieves, robbers, murderers, destroyers, that kind of overshadows this teaching. Like he then says, I... Now we're really clear who the good shepherd is. We're really clear. I have come that you might have life. And you might have it, not just life, but fully. Like when he says that, I think the intent is is you forget about everything he said about bad shepherding. Now he wants you to see a good shepherd. He wants you to see him. I I think he wants to, to, to look at you and say, Tell me your best life that you can imagine. So so do that for a minute. What's what's your best life that you can imagine? What what would it look like? What would be in play? What would be in place? What would be the structure? What would be your work? What would be your family? What would be your relationships? What would be your community? Imagine that life. And then imagine God coming in the flesh, looking at you and saying, I can do better. I've got better for you than that life that you've concocted up there. I came that you might have life and that you might have it, a lot of times it's translated abundantly, that's a good one. I like the word fully. Fully, full is the word. And then Jesus moves forward from that because he, he wants to like portray this life in a way you talk about not expecting what he's about to do now he holds up a mirror of his life with his father listen listen to verse 14 I am the good shepherd and I know mine and those who are mine know me now here it comes just as the father knows me And I know the Father. And I lay down my whole life for the sheep. In verse 17, my Father loves me. And I lay down my whole life. And absolutely no one, he says, can take it from me. But I lay it down. I lay it down on my own accord. And then he says, because this is the command I received from my Father. Man, he holds up this mirror and he says, what I'm talking about here, this full life I'm talking to you about that I came to give, it's the one I have with my father. It's that life. So I want to cue us in to just real quick three words in there. One is knowledge. He says, I know my father, and my father knows me, not just things about me. I don't know just things about him. I know him, like you know that person in your life or those people in your life. Secondly, he's, is love. That's the force he wants us to see in this relationship between him and his father. My father loves me. Jesus knew that to be true. He had heard it. Remember his baptism. Hey, this is my son whom I love. He knew it to be true because he'd heard it. He also knew it to be true because he had seen it. It had been love in action for him. He could recall back to being in the wilderness 40 days without food. And he could remember how God cared for him out of love. He took care of him. So much so that at the end of 40 days, Jesus still had the strength to, like, pound the devil down. That's what love did for him. That's what God caring for him did. did. Jesus didn't say, whoa, not now. This is the end of 40 days and no food. I'm a little bit burned out right now. Jesus rose up in trust and dependence on his father, in obedience, and had one of his most shining moments of strength and power. Satan, I have food you know nothing about. I have nourishment. And I want you to think about obedience Jesus says, I willingly, lovingly lay down my life because this is my expression of love to my Father who has given me a command, and I obey it. Out of the fullness of my heart, I obey it because I know he knows me. He wouldn't ask me to do something that I couldn't do. Not only that, I know he loves me. He wouldn't ask me to do anything that wouldn't be good for me. So if he tells me to lay down my life, there it is. So Jesus is holding that mirror up. There's one last thing I want us to hear him say, because I think it's really important. Verse 16. I have sheep, he says, that are not of this pen. And it is necessary. I don't know if some of you remember this or not, but there's this little three-letter word. It's pronounced Dei, D-E-I, that Jesus uses here. It's a really important word in the New Testament. Sometimes it's used casually, but most of the time, the scholars call it the, the divine imperative. It's translated, it is necessary. But, but it's, it's fuller than that. I mean, that's strong enough. It is necessary, but it means this is in God's eternal plan. It is necessary. I, I must. I'm, I'm compelled here. It is necessary, he says, for me to bring them so that they also hear my voice. You know who he's talking about, right? Us. <laughs> he's talking about this is us. The people outside the tribe. The Gentiles, the ones who didn't look like them, the ones who didn't smell like them. Maybe that was good, I don't know. The ones who didn't follow their behavioral codes, the ones who didn't understand their heritage very well, the ones who probably didn't hold their political persuasions or their social positions. That's who he's talking about. This was a bombshell. Don't miss this statement of Jesus. Don't like romanticize that. I have sheep in other sheep pens that I'm going to go get them. And I'm going to bring him in that gate. I'm going to open that gate for him. You know why? Because here's the vision of God. One flock. One shepherd. And they belong. Not because they're worthy of it. They they belong because I'm going to go get them. Just like I'm trying to get you, I think he would have said. It is necessary to go get them. This is part of what God is doing one flock and one shepherd. This is the work of God, this is the work of a good shepherd. That's the story. That's the story. End of story. Well, not really. We'll look at the second half next week. So let's pause and not do what the Pharisees didn't do and not reflect. Let's just reflect for a moment before we end. There's all kinds of application you could make from this. I tried to grab a few. First of all is a simple question. Who's your shepherd? Jesus is offering himself as the good shepherd. This isn't a story about a bunch of bad shepherds and then a bunch of good shepherds. This is a story about a bunch of bad shepherds and a singular shepherd. He's not pointing to anyone else but himself. He's offering himself as a good shepherd. And human beings, we can try to be good shepherds, but we don't want to point to ourselves. (laughs) Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd. So the question is not loaded. I'm not trying to be cute. I'm just saying, which one are you following? Which one are you looking to? Who are you looking to for the orientation of your life? Who are you looking to to get that life that is in your head as the best life possible? Do you have a place in your heart and mind that will grab onto that best life possible? Is with, better with him than I could ever scheme or dream? My, my college degree, my smarts. My family heritage. Or, get this, my brokenness can't even ruin it. Jesus has a life that you can't imagine for you. It doesn't mean that, like, the details of it will be pleasant, comfortable, and good. um, Much of the time, even. But it does mean it's better. It's better than you can imagine. Secondly... Let's just reflect on that critical core of Jesus' teaching. I came that you might have life fully. Like, it's just a simple question. Is that reality for you? Like, are you tasting that life? I don't mean just in theory, but in day-to-dayness. Don't don't move into shame. I'm not asking if, you know, it's present every second for you. If, If it is, please... Come up here and throw me down on the floor and start teaching us. But I'm saying, are you experiencing that life? Because it is freely offered. How do you get it? Well, that's the point of the story. That's the point of the healing, is that we would meditate on that. Because they'll tell you better than I can. God's word will tell you better. His spirit will tell you better. But I, but I will say this. It's in Jesus. That's what I know. So I can say that. It's in him. You might might be helpful to recall those three words. Knowledge. <clears throat> I'm your good shepherd. Are you coming to know him like that? Like you know him. You know his moves. You know his thoughts. You're getting to know them anyway. Are you nurturing Love. For him what's that look like for you what disciplines or actions are are in your life that you're practicing that are nurturing love for him and then thirdly like how's the obedience thing going for you what what place is obedience to God what what what's the shape of that in your life These three three things, it's not all there is to say, but knowledge, love, and obedience are are critical shapes for the follower of Jesus. And, And we ought to be able to say, yeah, I'm not doing great always, but like I am pursuing those things in my life. And then one last question. It's the point of the last point. Jesus spoke of bringing in others into the pen. And, you know, most of us, we hear that. We want that. We don't know what to do with it, or we form our own strategies to do it our own ways. But it is, whatever the case is, it is at the heart of God. It's his divine imperative. I want you to imagine him using your life As it is, not the scrubbed up, clean, perfect version of it. Stop waiting on that one. I mean as it is, to help other people come into this flock. And, you know, personally, I feel like I fail here so often. I'll be honest with you, I feel like i failed you as pastor in this way some. But it's such the longing of my heart that we get to experience this divine imperative, this mission that Jesus is on as his people. I think most of us would say it's sort of why I'm here. And it certainly is for Cindy and me. We know this fuels our love. So that's the third question. Are you ready to be part of that? And... It's not going to look like rolling out some great strategy to do it. I mean, we may, this is us people, form some, and may may we do so as we follow the Lord together. But what's your participation going to look like in that? I think it's going to ask a lot from us. I don't know what that looks like. But it will mirror some of these ways for sure. Let's pray together, and chance you you get to figure out what to do with the seven minutes we have left. So. Lord, we are so blessed to be, get to hear these short stories. Um, we. We really want to find ourselves in that pen with the good shepherd. We want to hear his voice. We want to know it. We want to go in and out of the pen with him. Um, We want to not freak out when the wolf shows up, knowing that we're in good hands. Lord, we so frequently don't do those things. Because, Lord, we have this... We have this vision that drives us of our version of our good life, and they don't include some of the circumstances of our lives presently, and we get we we take that into our hands and we try to survive. Lord, would that would that core teaching rest with us? I've come that you might have life. I am the good shepherd. Lord, help us. Help us to. In better ways, mirror the relationship you have with your Father. That's the cry of our heart. We want to be in that place. Deal with us right where we are as people, as a people. Amen.